which is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a good God. We thank you for providing this beautiful space uh, for our church to meet. Your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. We are sinners in need of your mercy, your grace. Dear Lord, help us not to embrace the world and all it offers, but rather Help us seek you and your kingdom in a community of believers, which is your plan so that we may be like you in word and deed. We ask that you empower Nick to clearly teach the truth of the scripture and that your spirit would be among us, moving within us to receive your word in a way that changes us. We love you and desire to love as you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jim and Rebecca. You guys can be seated. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 4. That is the teaching text and where we're going to spend our time this evening. Uh, the one thing I did forget to announce, actually there's probably multiple things I forgot to announce. The one thing I'm aware of that I forgot to announce uh, is there is, like, we, kids are in the building with us now during the all gathering. Uh, the intention next month is for that not to be parents through that space and show you what that space looks like. So forgot to announce that. Wanted to make sure you knew. Um, but more importantly, maybe not more importantly if you're a mom who's concerned, but more importantly, back to the text. Oh, there's a mother's room too, right back there. There's that. Back to the text. Matthew 4. What, what we see here in Matthew chapter 4, is a micro picture of the life intention between heaven and earth. A tension between refreshed baptism that happens in chapter 3, having God speak truth over Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, and then, notice the word then, almost as a therefore, Jesus is led out to the wilderness. By whom? By the devil? 
Is he baptized and then filled with evil thoughts that lead him out to the wilderness? Not at all. He is baptized and then the Holy Spirit who has rested upon him and the Spirit leads him, leads Jesus into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. From the water to the desert, from refreshment to being parched, from filled to hungry, from the voice of heaven to the voice of hell. And yet the Spirit is the one leading through all of it. That is important to note. It's important to note because far too often, when life is going well, what is the reason? What is the reason life is going well? Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, the reason we believe life is going well or the reason we tell ourselves that life is going well is because I am doing well. We tell ourselves that if my life is better than other people's, then maybe I am in fact better than other people. If my life is going better, then I must be better. And then we hit this turn in the story that with the way Matthew writes this text, that with the way Matthew writes this text seems to happen so very quickly. We hit this turn where things get worse. And when things are good, if it means that I am better, then when things get worse, it must mean that I too am worse. But this text like flips that on its head. It flips that reality on its head. The one person in all of human history that is completely in step with the leading of the Holy Spirit goes from a really high high to what you and I would call a really low low. And the Bible describes neither of these as experiences dependent upon what Jesus is necessarily doing and is more, in fact, like a reality of what God, what the Holy Spirit is doing here on earth. But there seems to be this close-knit correlation that when God pours His strength and peace and presence on something, that what happens is there is also like more conflict and more tension and more temptation, more strife will be there too. Like, if someone brought you into Christianity with, like, all your problems were going to be solved, they lied to you. They lied to you. You now have, like, an evil one who opposes your soul. Or to quote Tim Keller on this, he says, If your life is absolutely tranquil, if it is comfortable, if there is no conflict inside and there is no conflict outside, it's because you're not led by the Spirit. You're not attempting things for God. You're not even attempting to please God. And if I could just state this really clearly, in my opinion, my humble opinion, this is one of the great temptations of our city, one of the great temptations of Bakersfield. You see, there is beauty to this city, and the beauty is often found in like the deep setting of roots within this city. It's a part of the ethos of the farming community, like Baker's Field, quite literally. Um, it's part of that ethos that like I farm the same land as my father and as my grandfather and my great-great-grandfather, that many families here and many families like across the community like represent that reality in living in Bakersfield. 
And Bakersfield is growing and people are moving in, but it's not like it's not transient in that sort of it's that sort of way. By and large, when people come to Bakersfield, they stay and they settle in, they set roots. Does that make sense? The temptation with setting roots is that you get to build a life that is around you and your comforts. And this lives in tension with its beauty. The ability to set roots here also leaves room for you to become complacent here. To settle in here in a both like literal and metaphorical sense. That you become less than who you were supposed to be because of your settling. But the way of the Spirit is not a like life and pathway of ease or comfort. It is often, the way of the Spirit often feels like the way into the wilderness. The temptation of this city is that we become people who are complacent, who do not take risks, who do not dream any more because our middle class lives are good enough and comfortable enough that listening to the Spirit is not secure enough for us anymore. In this city in particular, what we have to be keen to do is not lose our desire to go where the Spirit goes and let the Spirit lead us wherever He decides to take us. Are you with me? Three of you, fantastic. If the goal, let me say it this way, if the goal of being in Bakersfield is to build the most beautiful life you can with all the things you've ever wanted, you must seriously consider whether that is what God's goal is for you to be in Bakersfield. What sort of life is the Holy Spirit leading you to build here? If I were to sum up what I just said, which was like just my intro, I'm sorry, but if I were to sum it up, Really quickly, what I would say is we must become people who are well acquainted with the Holy Spirit leading us to the places we would not necessarily into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When the Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness, I want us to like use your imagination to think well about the picture that's being painted by Matthew in this story. The first thing that we should notice is that like, like this is a, a, a reach back, like it's a, a hyperlink to use a Tim Mackey term, back to the story of Exodus. When we see the number 40 and we think about wilderness, we should like really think about Moses and the Israelites and the story of Exodus and their 40 years in the wilderness. We should think about their story of deliverance. We should think about what God's doing to the Israelite people in wilderness. We should think about all those things. All those things should come to mind. It's important that we see that connection. But for tonight, we're actually not going to dive into the exodus touch point of this story. Tonight, I want to like spend our time looking at these three like pieces of temptation, one by one, and seeing like trying to do the work to get to like what's the deeper thing that Satan is offering to Jesus, that we might become aware of that same temptation that, that the devil offers to us. But this word wilderness in the Greek 
is the word eremos. Could you say eremos with me? The translation of this word eremos into wilderness or desert is not wrong. Of course, it's not wrong. But some other translations or meanings of this word can give help like clarity. It can give it clarity to what it's intending to say. Some additional ways to see this word is like a place that is uncultivated, implying that it needs cultivation, or a, a place that has been deserted by others, the lonely place, or the place where no one is and no thing is, maybe even like a quiet sort of place. But the picture here is that Jesus goes out, led by the Spirit, to the lonely, quiet, desolate place. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who is a Dutch Catholic writer and theologian whom I love, I'm a giant fan of, writes about the desert fathers and mothers of the third and fourth century who fled Rome, committed their lives to solitude and like monastic devotion to God as they lived in the desert. And so they have a thing to say about wilderness and about this story of Jesus going into the wilderness. I want to share this quote with you from Henry Nouwen. It is the nothingness in solitude that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. The task is to persevere in my solitude to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors visited Jesus Christ. Or I'm going to summarize it with philosopher Blaise Pascal, which is really interesting that the philosopher used way less words to describe what Henry Nouwen just described. But he says this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. You see, the wilderness is the place where we go and are stripped away of things. The wilderness, like, forces us to, like, shed layers that we normally inhabit, that we normally wear, like, a coat or a jacket. We're, we're forced to take things off and be confronted with our solitude. And this can look like a lot of different things. This can look like a season of life. This can look like a response to something significant happening in your life. Like the force of wilderness, the power of wilderness, the power of solitude can come in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. But the point of the wilderness is that it's a place where we go to encounter God. Yes, of course. It is also where you go to encounter the depths of the things that still exist inside of you. And even more so, according to this text, a place where you go where you are likely, if, not if you are not guaranteed to encounter like the devil himself. This place is necessary to those who desire to grow in spiritual maturity. This place is necessary to like deep internal transformation. And it's hard and it's painful and it's necessary. And I'll just be honest with you, like it can be escaped. You don't have to go there. It can be distracted from. It can be put aside and covered up. 
Your life can be so full that you never get to this place. Or when it comes along, you just move on from the difficult rather than move into the difficult. But what you miss is like a well of deep love and beauty and goodness of God that you can only get to if like the layers are straight. The first temptation is a practical one. Jesus is hungry because he's already been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The first temptation seems fitting to be about food after fasting for so long. It reminds me, when I was in youth group, we, we did like a three-day fast, and then we came back, and I remember the guy who led worship saying like, we are hungry, we are hungry, hungry for more. That's, that's the best I could do singing-wise. Um, but it was like, like, it's not surprising that this happens at this moment that this happens at this moment. But one of the things that I think we have to do, the work that we have to do to understand what's happening here well, is to like get to the thing underneath the thing. We have to get to the thing underneath the thing. The question on the service is like, like Jesus, you're hungry. Would you turn the stones into bread? And that's a bit obvious, but I think things are a bit deeper than that with this question. And Few of you know this about me, and I'll just use my own life as an example, but I have this like struggle with the way that I consume food. When I eat, particularly when I feel a lot of stress, I like mentally disengage my brain and turn into this like ravenous food consumer that like just keeps going until my belly's like, you're full, stop it, okay? It sounds gross because it is. Like, it is gross. I'm not, like, sloshing food around. Like, it's not like that. But it's, like, internally, it's gross. But what happens on the inside is, like, I almost disconnect from the world around me. And that may not make sense to any of you because, like, food is a bad example for you. But the real problem for me has actually nothing to do with the food and it has to do with, like, um, It has to do with something much deeper than that. Like the real problem is more tied to like my self-control and my emotional health than it is ever tied to the food. Like I I have a hard time generally feeling feelings. That's not something I'm good at. I have to work really hard to feel things. I used to carry around in my Bible like a folded up page of emotion words. So when people asked how I was, I didn't use the word I'm fine. Like I, something other than that. I had to feel something different than fine or angry. And food for me is a way that like saturates or like waters down how I feel. I could just bury it under how I consume food. And the reason I tell that story is because it's important to see that like the temptation is often much deeper than just the thing on the surface. One more time, back to Henry Nouwen. It's Henry Nouwen Day, by the way, Uh, but in a different book, which I love the title of this book. The title is The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life. But Henry Nouwen calls this temptation the temptation for Jesus to be relevant. This temptation is about Jesus finding significance in the miraculous way he provides for ordinary things. Jesus is invited to like recenter his identity based on the things that he does and can do for himself and for others. 
This temptation is about Jesus providing for, um, for himself and for others. But like the, the invitation here from the devil is to like that, that Jesus' identity would shift to where the things that he does would be relevant to him and the people around him. They would be seen as something that matters. And often I think we get caught up in becoming people who believe we are something based on the things that you and I produce. We become people who think our lives have value and meaning based on what we produce in the world. And that statement, or this statement, we believe we are what we do, and that is a lie from the devil. You are not what you do. The difficulty with the temptation to be relevant or to matter is that in the Christian community, this is couched also in like language of vocation and call. And I think that that's a horrible term, like calling and vocation. I, I like the term vocation. I don't like the term call because it's reserved for like clergy and missionaries when like all of us have been given gifts that were meant to be used in the world to advance the kingdom of God and be a part of ushering in what Jesus is doing. But I think that sometimes we could spend our entire life being called to do things and never get to who you really are. And I think that's the invitation for Jesus here, is to like do things outside the center of who he really is. You see, you could spend all your days feeding the hungry, which Jesus says and God says is very important. You could spend all your days doing that and still miss God. If you are bound up in your own service and productivity... And if I'm honest, some of the greatest people I know or the people that I look up to and I admire, some of them fall into this category. I actually don't love them. I love the things they produce. This is the upper middle class American way where like producing goods and being looked at by your peers for what you produce, regardless of your field of work, like this is what we value. And Jesus resists the temptation to be known for the things that he does. He resists that temptation. Back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So if the offer of like business and productivity won't tempt Jesus, maybe the offer of celebrity will. Maybe the offer of being known for doing spectacular things is, is something that Jesus will buy into, but again, Jesus resists. The temptation for you and I today to be like be thought of as spectacular, do amazing things, like that is very normal to the air that we breathe in this culture. We live in a culture where that says being known by others, being seen by others, more perceived than seen really, but like being seen by others is of utmost importance. The temptation to do something spectacular, as Nowen calls it, still lives in you and I today. 
We know this from social media culture. We know this is like the rise of a job as an influencer, which wasn't even the thing 10 years ago, or a YouTuber, or the list goes on and on. And there's no shame to like Gen Z in that. It's just what they know. And if I'm honest, I would be a YouTuber too, if I could. But I want you just for a second to think about the way that this idea of doing and being spectacular has affected the community of God. I want you to think about the way it's affected the church for a second. We talked about this a lot, me, Jackie, Brandon, and Liz. Like when we began to first plant River and Way, like what makes a church successful? Or to use Nowen's language, what makes a church a community? Is it doing things the way they've been done or being open to what the Spirit might be doing now? And honestly, this is easy to say because we're a relatively small and unknown church. But the heart of our leadership has never been about chasing things that will grow our church in any sort of nominal or numeric sort of way. We have always desired to be open to a move of God rather than to anything we could muster up on our own ability or strength. But culturally, we must see this crave of spectacular is so far from the way that God does things. Think about just for a second, like the story of God. Like the hero is like the remnant of Israel, the small, faithful community. And then the climax of the redemptive story is the person of Jesus who comes from Nazareth. And like what good thing could possibly come from Nazareth? You see, in the depths of the desert, in the depths of the quiet place, God desires to do away with the desire to make much of yourself. From the beginning of creation, God has desired to be with his people, and the greatest points of failure have been when humanity tried to make much of themselves. Whether it's Adam and Eve wanting to be like God in the garden, knowing good and evil, or those participating in the building of the Tower of Babel that had to collapse trying to make much of their name. Deeply seated in the human heart is a desire to be made much of. And we often take that desire and build a life around people knowing us, thinking much of us, seeing us as good and honorable people. And what happens is we end up valuing what others say so much because we want to be made much of, that we build our lives around the voices of others rather than the voice of God. We believe we are what other people think and say about us, and that is a lie from the devil. You are not what people say about you. Too much of our lives have been built around the voice of others, not the voice of God. I want to give you just a brief list of what the scriptures say about you. You are a friend of God. You are chosen and appointed by God. You have been justified and redeemed. You are a fellow heir with Christ. You are accepted by Christ. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You are blameless before God. You are holy and blameless before Him. You've been made alive with Christ. 
You are made in the likeness of God. You are righteous and holy. You were formerly citizens, you were formerly darkness, and now you are light. You are a citizen of heaven. You've been raised with Christ. You've been made complete with Christ, and you are a child of God. That is just some of the list. So whatever lies you have been believing, whatever stories you have inherited from what others have spoken over you in the past, would you like visit the desert and lean into those lies that God would speak redemptive truth over them? All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Lastly, the devil comes to Jesus. And the devil has the power, it seems, to take Jesus to a very high mountain and show him a sight that portrays all the kingdoms in the world in all their splendor. I don't know if this is an earthly mountain or like a heavenly or spiritual sort of mountain. The text doesn't tell us. But Jesus has made the offer to worship the devil, and then the devil will give all of these things, will give all of this to Jesus. We do know that the devil has some dominion in the world. He has some sway over things, but that it is limited. But we also know that the devil is the father of all lies, as John 8 says. So we don't know if this is like a legitimate offer or a lie to Jesus. But we do know, like we have the the full story and picture to see. We know that Jesus' kingship will be established and he will rule and reign forever. But just for a second, would you consider the temptation that Jesus must have experienced in this moment? Jesus knows where the story's going. He knows that like he is the one who is going to rule and reign forever. He will be the king and king, king of kings and lord of lords. He knows that. But but just for a second, could you imagine or he could choose to remain faithful to the mission that he's been sent on by God. And this temptation to Jesus is like one to take up everything he could ever like long for in a powerful sort of sense. And power is a commodity one that when it comes to earthly kingdoms has much benefit and much gain. But Jesus resists the choice to become a powerful king, knowing that the kingdom of God, uh, like knowing that the structure of the kingdom of God is like inverted from the way the kingdom of the world works. God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom and those who use their power or influence on earth to benefit themselves are actually considered like weak in the kingdom of God. And those that use their power and influence on earth for others are actually strong in the kingdom of God. This is back to the Abrahamic blessing in Genesis 12 that Abraham has been blessed, not just that he would have a good life, but that he would be a blessing. Jesus resists this temptation to become ruler of every kingdom of the world. Jesus resists the temptation to take all that he can see into his grasp. Jesus resists the desire to have the entire world as his own. To resist the entrapments of this world and the entrapment of power and kingdoms and all the things that anyone could ever want or have. Sometimes we believe that we, you and I, are the culmination of all the things that we have or all the social capital that we have gained or all the influence or authority we carry over others. 
And Jesus sees this all before him and lays it down, and we are invited to do the same. We believe who we are is dictated by the power, influence, and treasures we have is a lie. You are not what you have. And all of this flows from somewhere. Like I mentioned earlier this evening, like there's underlying motivation. The devil is inviting Jesus to like recenter his identity on these things. But what is so beautiful about this story is the way that Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 knit together. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. And the Father speaks over him, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and rests on him. But Jesus is able to resist these temptations because Jesus' like deeply rooted identity in who God says he is. Jesus is not caught up in the temptation because of like some other offer to be something else. And from Jesus that comes from the baptism moment in Matthew 3, I want to read just a piece of it. Matthew 3, 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Verse 15, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The beautiful part of this story is Jesus is baptized before he ever does any public ministry. And God speaks his pleasure and delight over him. Before Jesus ever begins to establish his kingdom on earth, God speaks delight and love over him. Before Jesus ever does anything spectacular, God speaks love over his son. The temptation to be relevant, spectacular, or powerful have no sway on Jesus because of his deeply rooted identity as God's loved son. God empowers Jesus with his spirit to live from a place of his true identity, the beloved Son of God. And that is the invitation for you and me today. That in this Lenten season, in remembering the wilderness, and for some of you, you may be experiencing the wilderness in your life right now, trusting that the Holy, Holy Spirit is still present to you, that the Holy Spirit is still guiding you. One thing that we often miss about the wilderness is that what happens in the wilderness is never wasted. We want to get out of the wilderness as soon as possible, but often the invitation is to stay in the wilderness until the work of God is done. Do not grow weary in the wilderness. The work of Christ may not be finished yet. God is still working things out of you and out of me. God is still taking you deeper. And if I am honest, I say those words just as much for myself as for anyone else. God's desire is that like things would be stripped away till we could get to the point to receive who we really are. 
to become more of who God says you are, His beloved child. We're almost done, I promise. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says this, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Would you receive your identity as a beloved child of God from Him again this evening? Not being caught up in, in trying to make much of yourself by doing things. Not being caught up by like a gaining power and attention and doing spectacular things. Not being caught up in any of those sorts of things but receiving the goodness of God. I just want to close with this line again. What sort of life is the Holy Spirit leading you into? And we must become people who are well acquainted with the Holy Spirit leading us to the places we would not necessarily choose to go ourselves. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this story. We thank you that, Spirit, you lead us to places that we would not choose to go ourselves. God, may we just like grow in the way that we trust your leadership, that we trust your leading. May we grow in like laying aside the pieces of our identity that we think make much of us, that we might just receive being your child. Like, could that be enough for us again? to strip everything else away and just find ourselves as a child of God. Would that be enough, God? We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We worship you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.